When Women Commit Violence. Alexandra Schwartz. When the journalist Elizabeth Flock was in her early 20s, she took a trip to Rome with friends. They hired a guide for a day, a bearded man a few years older. After showing them the sights, he brought them to a bar, the American kind that panders to young tourists with shots, and then to the Trevi Fountain, where they threw pennies over their shoulders. The next thing Flock knew, she was waking up in bed, the guides. He had drugged her drink. Now he was raping her. What might have happened, Flock wondered later, if she had had a knife? A gun? In the event, she had nothing, and did nothing. She froze, as many people do. When it was over, she didn't go to the police, she doubted they would help. Her anger grew. Nearly a decade later, she tracked her assailant down online and discovered that he lived, amazingly, in the same city as she did. He ran a furniture store, which she fantasized about burning down. She didn't do that either, but now she has written a book about women who did do something. It's called The Furies, Women, Vengeance, and Justice, Harper. The title is telling. Many ancient cultures represented justice in female form, Flock notes. She mentions the Hindu warrior goddess Durga and the Sumerian goddess Inanna, who is raped by a gardener while sleeping, then sends down plagues to flush him out of hiding. The Furies of ancient Greece and Rome were also divine, a trio of miserable hags with snakes for hair. They appear in Aeschylus Orestia, where they hound Orestes after he murders his mother, and, 1700 years later, in Dante's Inferno, where they shriek and tear at their breasts. Flock doesn't mention the Furies' origin story, but it is a Freudian field day, according to the poet Hesiod, they sprang from drops of bloodshed when Cronus, son of Gaia and Uranus, was incited by his mother to cut off his father's testicles. The Best Books We Read This Week https colon slash slash www.newyorker.com slash best dash books dash 2023. Read our reviews of notable new fiction and non-fiction, updated every Wednesday. https colon slash slash www.newyorker.com slash best dash books dash 2023. Flock's point is that there is a mythic quality to the anger of a wronged woman which crosses cultures, as does the thing that Flock considers to be its source, male domination. The same traits that made the Furies repulsive to men of the past make them awesome to women today, a symbol of female agency in the face of oppression and pain. The Furies, or their descendants, are everywhere. Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron in Mad Max, Fury Road, 2015, and by Anya Taylor-Joy in the upcoming Furiosa, a Mad Max saga, is an ass-kicking, gun-toting liberationist with a mechanical arm who rescues an enslaved harem of women from a mean old despot. She drives stick, she is an action hero, not a miserable hag. The same is true of Rooney Mara's Lisbeth Salander, in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Uma Thurman's Bride, in Kill Bill. Each of these movies was directed by a man, evidently, the story of a woman getting hers has crossover appeal. For a while, Flock says, she was drawn to these glorified accounts of female revenge. They galvanized her. It's helpful, when you have been rendered powerless, to feel that others forced into a similar position have triumphed, not only vanquishing their foes, but making them suffering kind. But Flock is a reporter, interested in real people living real lives, so she found three furies of her own. They are contemporary women who, 
as she writes, took matters into their own hands. Flock's first subject is Brittany Smith, a mother of four from Stevenson, Alabama. In January 2018, she met Joshua Todd Smith, no relation, a roughneck from a nearby town who bred pit bulls, when he sold her one of his dogs. The following night, he convinced Brittany to pick him up from a park where he was stranded in the snow. Todd was known as a Jekyll and Hyde type, Flock writes, sweet when sober, terrifying when high on a cocktail of meth and Xanax. Back at Brittany's house, Hyde took over. Brittany later testified that Todd violently raped her, strangling her until she passed out. Eventually, she managed to get word to her younger brother Chris, who arrived with a gun. Todd put Chris in a headlock, Brittany took the gun and shot Todd, killing him. After she was arrested and charged with murder, she pleaded not guilty, invoking the state's stand-your-ground law. Next comes Nguri Daharia, born in 1963 to a poor family of Dalit farmers, members of the untouchable caste, in northern India. Nguri married a kind man and became a meek housewife and mother, eventually finding work delivering polio vaccines. The couple managed to make a down payment on a small plot of land in the town of Turwa, where they built a two-room hut, they enrolled their children in good schools. In 1999, the upper-caste owner of the land, which Nguri had been buying in installments, told her that he wanted her family out and summoned a band of men to forcibly evict them. The humiliation proved radicalizing. During the altercation, Nguri brandished a bamboo cane, called a lodi, and this gave her an idea. She went on to muster a gang of women to punish men for their abuses, training her followers to wield lodis in local disputes. Finally, there is Sisik Mustafa Zebo, the third of seven girls born to a Kurdish family in northern Syria. In 2013, when she was 17, she joined the YPJ, the Women's Protection Units, an all-female militia that had been created as a counterpart of the male-led People's Protection Units, YPG, with the goal of defending a Kurdish homeland in the region. Sisik was soon posted to Kobani, a Kurdish-majority city that had come under assault from ISIS militants, where she made a name for herself as a fearless warrior, facing down the enemy without flinching. It is hard to overstate how different these people are from one another. They live in different parts of the world. They speak different languages. They are of different ages, backgrounds, circumstances, beliefs if they met on the street, but that would never happen, and that is one reason that Flock has written The Furies. This sensitively reported book has an ambition similar to that of a glorious Steinem talking circle. Without drawing explicit connections between these women, each is presented on her own, a separate panel in the triptych, Flock is putting them in conversation with one another. That is a feminist project, and Flock wants us to see her subjects through a feminist lens. One thing that Brittany, Nguri, and Sisik have in common, she writes, is that each is living within damaging cultures of honor, and she reads their various acts of violence as means of resistance. Brittany Smith, for example. Flock suggests that if it had been her brother Chris who had shot Todd Smith, he would have been treated more leniently because of the good OL Boys Club. Ethos of the Rural South. In fact, Brittany, in a panic, did initially claim that Chris was the shooter. This later caused problems for her in court. At first, her brother went along with the lie. 
Chris had always heard the same refrain growing up, from his mom, his sister, and other women in Stevenson, that women were treated as second-class citizens in Jackson County, especially by the police, Flock writes. Chris, on the other hand, could say he was merely standing his ground to protect his sister, as any reasonable man would do. Flock notes that between 2006, when Alabama passed its Stand Your Ground law, and 2010, when it temporarily stopped sending relevant data to the FBI, the state did not report any woman winning a justifiable homicide ruling. In 2019, one did, Jewel Battle, from Huntsville, who had stabbed her male roommate after he choked her during a fight. But that was an exception. The same year, another Alabama woman, Linda Doyle, shot and killed her husband, who her lawyer said had sexually abused her for years. Doyle was found to have stab wounds on her abdomen and inside her vagina, prosecutors argued that she had inflicted these on herself. She was sentenced to 99 years. Video from The New Yorker Night of Fortune, Friendship Blooms at a Morgue https slash slash www.newyorkcar.com slash video slash watch slash the New Yorker shorts night have fortune hashtag insert equals recommendations underscore CNE interlude New Yorker v underscore BDA 60 ACCBF Edbed FD underscore Alberta similarity. Brittany comes out somewhere in between Battle and Doyle. When Flock first wrote about her for this magazine in 2020, she had not yet had her stand your ground hearing. When she does, things don't go well. Brittany's memory is questioned, and so is her truthfulness. A physical examination after her assault showed that her body was covered in bruises and abrasions, but no semen was found at the crime scene, so the prosecution casts doubt on the rape. Flock lets you know what she thinks about the people whose job it is to poke holes in Brittany's credibility. One of them, an investigator brought in as a witness for the prosecution, is described as having a weasel-like face. Brittany is unsuccessful in the hearing, the judge, a woman, writes a 19-page ruling explaining that she had failed to prove that she acted in self-defense. Eventually, rather than go to trial, Brittany pleads guilty to murder. She receives a 20-year sentence, but is released after seven months, plus time served. It is enraging to read about the legal gauntlet that Brittany endures because she tried to protect herself from sadistic abuse. But an interesting thing happens as Flock continues to follow her. At first, Brittany seems heroic, not so much for shooting her assailant as for facing down a court system set against her. As her ordeal drags on, though, Brittany runs into problems. Like many of her neighbors in Jackson County, she had once been addicted to meth, she lost custody of her kids, and was trying to regain it when she met Todd, and eventually she relapses. Also, she meets a new man, Michael, who seems nice but, she says, can turn aggressive when drunk. One day, in his trailer, he pours a beer over Brittany's head. When he is gone, she lights his mattresses on fire and is jailed for arson. Brittany had never been a perfect victim for trial, Flock writes, citing the work of Nils Christie, the Norwegian criminologist who came up with the idea of the ideal victim, someone who, as Flock puts it, is weak, doing something respectable, in a place they couldn't be blamed for being, and hurt by a big and bad, unknown offender. She turns out not to be an ideal avenger of injustice, either. Some of her supporters feel let down when she accepts the plea deal, her mother is heartbroken. The warrior was a mere woman, after all. That tension, the real versus the ideal, crops up again and again in Flux Project.
neither saints, nor whores, only women, her book's epigraph reads, but her attachment to the mythic is hard to shake. Sisak, the Kurdish fighter, is the character who comes closest to embodying the figure of a fury. Look at her go, blowing the heads off ISIS militants with her Kalashnikov. You see why Flock wanted to include her. Here was a woman who feared that she would be married off in her teens and instead got to act as a liberator of her people, doing battle with a murderous, misogynist foe. But the thing that makes her such a good soldier in the field, her single-mindedness, also makes her a bit boring on the page. Flock gets pulpy when she describes Sisak imagining Turkish mercenaries invading her village, boots stomping into her parents' home, and her sisters violated by faceless men in uniform. Even Sisak admits that her kills begin to blur together in her mind. There is a deep compassion in Flock's account, but here and there you see her wrestle with her journalistic skepticism, wondering whether her subject is quite who she wishes to be. The trickiest, and most intriguing, character in this regard is Nguri Dahariya. Her trajectory is even more astonishing than Sisak's. No recruiting militia passed through her village, her transformation from obedient housewife to swaggering gang leader was accomplished by sheer force of will. Nguri did have a model, though, Fulan Devi, India's so-called bandit queen. Devi, born the same year as Nguri, and in the same state, Uttar Pradesh, was a low-caste woman who was married off as a child. She escaped from her husband and was kidnapped by a group of bandits, then became a bandit herself, earning a reputation as a Robin Hood who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. She was also known for exacting vigilante justice on men who had harmed women. In one notorious incident, her gang was accused of massacring some twenty men in a village where she said she had been raped. Exploits like these made her a national legend. She died the death of a legend, too. After spending eleven years in prison, she was cleared of all charges, elected to parliament, and then assassinated in 2001. Experts have ranked India among the world's most dangerous countries for women, it's no wonder that people might prefer a larger-than-life protectress to indifferent or corrupt authorities. The same is true in other places where gendered violence tends to go unpunished. In the early 2010s, after two bus drivers in Mexico were shot dead at point-blank range, a woman calling herself Diana, huntress of bus drivers claimed responsibility, declaring that she had avenged the rapes of female passengers. This is the sort of grand persona that Nguri aspires to. At first, Flock writes, her goal was simple, to prevent injustices like the one she'd faced. When a junior engineer at Turwa's electricity department is believed to be defrauding locals, Nguri directs her gang to cane him and then to humiliate him by dressing him in women's clothes, he is reassigned to another district, and the town's bills go down. As she tastes power, though, her motives and methods become less pure. Nguri coerces one fearful mother into reporting her daughter's rape by kidnapping the woman and promising a pension that Nguri is in no position to provide, she sets a police station on fire. She gets involved with politics, and people start to mutter that she is corrupt. Her self-mythologizing was part of her success. Flock writes. When she meets with Nguri, she is struck by the way Nguri's followers laugh and cry when she does, amplifying the performance. Nguri is like God, mother, and father, one of them says. Flock is dealing with that famous type, the unreliable narrator, but she can't help wanting to believe. Sometimes she makes her doubt clear. 
Does Nguri perhaps regret thrashing a young girl, married off at 15, because her parents complained that the girl had left her husband for another man? Nguri doesn't care. She is brash and fun, in the way that TV mobsters are fun. She carries a fake guest bag and hires a private car to take her around. Why should only men get to be gang bosses? This kind of egotism is not the same thing as feminism, but it's often mistaken for it. Flock knows the difference. Still, she wraps up her story, hopefully, with a moral for us to take home. Canes should only be wielded against the powerful, and Greed dutifully says to her, and Flock lets her say it, though it's just a politician's line, telling the people what they want to hear. Most women who turn to violence are not running around with Lotties or warring with ISIS. They may not even be avenging themselves on their abusers, though often they have endured terrible abuse. They tend to hurt the people closest to them, their partners, their children, or themselves. This awful reality is reflected in If Love Could Kill, Knopf, a new book by Anna Motz. Ignore the tacky title, the majority of the people Motz writes about are neither killers nor driven by an excess of love. Her real concern, as her plainer subtitle has it, is the myths and truths of the women who commit violence, and what she has to say on the truth's front is distressing in the extreme. Motz grew up in New York, trained as a clinical psychologist, and has spent her 30-year career in England, where she works as a forensic psychotherapist. This, she explains, means that she brings the psychoanalytic approach into the field of criminality, using talk therapy to help her patients identify the unconscious influences that have led them to where they are today, often prison, or a secure hospital ward. Motz treats both men and women, but women are her specialty. Many are angry, aggressive, and intimidating, but in equal parts frightened, vulnerable, and traumatized, she writes. They are also considered harder work than the vast majority of our referrals, men with long histories of violent crime. Motza's book makes clear why. None of its ten chapters, each of which gives a pseudonymous account of a patient, is easy to read, and some are excruciating. There is Grace, who feigned or caused the illnesses that frequently landed her daughter in the hospital, and Skye, 23 and in jail for an assault conviction, who compulsively ties ligatures around her neck. Tanya live-streamed her torture of an acquaintance. Lillian stabbed her abusive husband to death, Paula is abusive to her own husband, who shrinks before her rages. Worst are two cases of egregious harm caused by mothers, Amber, a woman who has sexually abused a number of children, including her own daughter, and Dolores, who, operating under the psychotic delusion that she had to protect her two daughters from a pedophile ring, attacked them both with an ice pick and drowned the younger one in the bath. Matza's job requires her to manage her feelings toward her patients, not to discount them, and she doesn't hesitate to acknowledge when she is overcome by revulsion. In the case of Amber, who seems to have no remorse for what she has done, she quotes D.W. Winnicott's idea that an analyst's obligation to remain objective toward a patient may sometimes require her to be able to hate the patient objectively. Another difficulty is managing the conflict between her feminist beliefs and the reality of some of these women's crimes. As a feminist, I was naturally disposed to see first the horror of domestic violence and to think primarily of the countless, often voiceless victims of toxic masculinity, abused or killed in a society that has consistently normalized the dehumanization of women and girls, Motz writes in the chapter devoted to Lillian. 
Yet as a forensic psychotherapist I also knew that sometimes it is the woman who is the intimate partner terrorist, using tyranny to protect herself from the shame and terror she herself feels. Really, these are two sides of the same coin. Few of the women Mott's treats are sway-generous psychopaths. These women are not the inhuman monsters of tabloid myth, she writes. They are not, in fact, so different from the vast majority of us, for their crimes are often the cruel result of the emotions we all share, the longing to love and be loved, the frustration and fear of parenthood, the corrosion of shame and self-loathing. This uncomfortable idea that very little separates us from them may be one reason that people don't want to believe that women are capable of terrible things. When we are forced to acknowledge it, when we read in the news about a Myra Hindley or a Ghislaine Maxwell, we curse them as monsters, devils, manifestations of pure evil. The same things that allowed such women to operate for so long with impunity, the mask of their sex, the sentimentalization of femininity, sealed their damnation in the public mind. Is glorification the best way to correct for this? Like Flock, Motz is interested in the lore of female vengeance, Judith beheading Holofernes, Medea killing her sons to spite Jason, Clytemnestra stabbing Agamemnon in the bath. But she finds such legends obfuscating rather than inspiring. Women's violence may look like an expression of agency, but it is the opposite, a reaction and a repetition. It is not triumphant or wicked. It's sordid, cyclical, and sad. As a reader of violence, Mott sees many of her patients' acts as attempts at communication, wishes to be caught, stopped, and punished. Helping them reach a deeper understanding of their pain, she thinks, might teach them how to handle it in a way that doesn't cause pain to others. Sometimes the act of interpretation itself can liberate a person. This turns out to be the case with Grace, the patient who was making her daughter sick. In medical terms, you could simply say that Grace had Munchausen syndrome by proxy, the condition made famous by the grisly case of Dee Dee Blanchard, the mother who was eventually killed by the boyfriend of the daughter she had forced to live as an invalid. What Motz wants to know is why. Her early sessions with Grace are unproductive and combative. Grace is paranoid, fearful, furious. She thinks Motz is trying to take her daughter away. Mott's despairs of making progress. Gradually, though, she comes to see Grace's actions as expressing a need for attention connected to her own early experience of emotional neglect. Doctors represented a powerful source of authority and comfort, and, as an adult, she stayed in this fantasy world, sucking her helpless child into it with her. After many sessions, Grace begins to soften. She starts working outside the home, she grows closer to her husband. She stops needing to see herself as her daughter's nurse and is able to retain custody of her. If love could kill is not a boastful record of one success after another. Some patients do remain beyond Motz's reach. But her successes are moving because they give hope. They show that people can surprise themselves with change. One of the book's most affecting stories is that of Mary, a patient whom Motz treated when she was first starting out. As a teenager, Mary was molested by her father, as a young woman, she had a son with a man who abused her. Because she found herself unable to leave him, child services took the boy away. One day, alone in her apartment, Mary set fire to the curtains. No one was hurt. 
Mary was arrested for arson, sent to prison, and then to a secure hospital designed for men, where she kept to herself. Each time she was on the verge of being discharged, though, she would harm herself, cutting or burning her body. When Mots meets her, Mary is 45. She has been living in this suspended state for more than 20 years. On a practical level, Mary's acts of violence produce a predictable effect, when she hurts herself, she is cared for by nursing staff. But Mott's reads arson committed by women in a specific way, as an expression of extreme feelings for which they have no other outlet. It requires no strength, anyone can do it. Also, it can appear to hold the promise of purification, a desperate attempt by people who have suffered appalling abuse to not only communicate their repressed anger but destroy the evidence of their own pain. Think of Britney Smith setting her boyfriend's mattresses ablaze. She couldn't say why she had lit the match. I know I wasn't trying to burn the house down, she said. Maybe she was trying to send up a flare. And think of Flock, who once imagined burning down her rapist store. Instead of destroying a building, she created a book. During her reporting, she writes, she suffered from chronic fatigue and stomach pain. When she was finished, her body healed. A fire can damage, or it can give light and warmth. It can be a place to gather, to share stories late into the night. Diamond Suit